Thanks very much, Silas, and uh, welcome everybody to worship at Bethany Community Church, wherever you're watching. We want you to know that we counted an incredible privilege to share this time with you as we find ourselves, all of us across the globe, in an unprecedented moment. We've shifted our texts uh, to begin this series in Acts at a different time than we'd originally planned, precisely because we believe that Acts speaks to this moment in a powerful way, as I hope to show you today. But as we begin this series today, I'd like to start by talking to you kids a little bit and telling you a story that I think will show you why the book of Acts is so important. I don't know if you know this, kids, but if you travel to a different country, when you go to a different country, you have different rules in that country. Let's just pretend for a minute that uh, you get on a plane with me and we are going to fly to England, okay? So we're going to fly to England. So we get on the plane and we take a nap and we watch a movie and then we take another nap and then when we wake up, everything's different than it is here in the United States. First of all, in England, everyone is driving on the wrong side of the road, and that can get you in trouble, as I learned in 1993, but that's a different story. Also, people walk on the other side of the street. Also, if you're going to cross the street, you have to be careful that you look to the right, not to the left, otherwise you won't see the cars that are coming. Also, a diaper in England is called a nappy, a sweater is called a jumper, a potato chip is called a crisp, and all the money has a picture of the queen on it. Your American dollar is no good there. So you went to sleep in one land, and you woke up in an entire different land. And now you have to figure out, how will I live in this land? Well, after the resurrection, uh, Jesus spent 40 days with his people... And for those 40 days, what Jesus did with them mattered a great deal because they were going to head out into a world that would soon become completely different. For them, it was going to be like waking up in a new land. Rome would burn to the ground. Jerusalem would be destroyed. Christians would be disliked. And to use a schoolyard term, they'd be bullied, first by the religious leaders of Judaism, then by the Roman Empire. Within a few generations, a plague would wipe out one quarter of the population, and the Christians would need to both tell people about Jesus and figure out what it means to follow Jesus at the same time. Very challenging. We have the same challenge. It's like for all of us right now at this moment in history, we went to sleep one day and we woke up in a new world. And in this new world, we can't gather in this building in which I'm preaching right now. In this new world, you may not have a job. In this new world, you're not certain about your health care. You're not certain about the health of your elderly parents. You're not certain about the health of your children. You're, you don't know what to do with your children all day long. It is different than it ever was. And it's not just different at home and different at work and different with regard to health care. It's different for us as a church, too. We're still called to love, still called to serve, still called to forgive, still called, as we saw in our interview, to serve immigrants who are brand new to this country even now and terrified. But while we're still serving and loving and forgiving, we're also figuring out what it means to follow Jesus in this new world. And so we need exactly what the disciples needed in Acts chapter 1, kind of a mini Bible school. We need to hear from Jesus. How do we live when God takes us to places we've never been before? How do we live when we feel like we're in a brand new land? So Jesus prepared his followers for this new land with what I call a 40-day mini Bible school after the resurrection. 
It says in Acts 1, he gathered them together and he gave them what we'll see in this text, two important things during those 40 days. First of all, he gave them convincing proofs that he was actually Jesus. He'd been dead, but now he's alive. Very important. And second, he gave them important information about the kingdom of God. So convincing proofs and important information. Those are the two things we're going to look at in our time together today. Let's begin with this, convincing proofs. It says in Acts chapter 1 that uh, Jesus appeared to them over 40 days and spoke concerning the kingdom of God and offered many convincing proofs regarding his resurrection. Now, I'm just going to ask the question at the beginning, why does this matter? And let me tell you why this matters. It matters because fake news has always been with us. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 12 to 15, after Jesus is raised from the dead, this is what we read. When the chief priests had met with the elders, they devised a plan. They gave soldiers a large sum of money, and they told the soldiers to say, Jesus' disciples came during the night, stole him away while we were asleep, and if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And whenever anyone asked, they said the disciples stole the body. And this story, we're told in Matthew 28, has been widely circulated to this very day. Fake news. There's always been fake news. So one of the reasons this matters is because dead people don't come back to life. And it would be very tempting to believe, oh yeah, maybe somebody just stole the body. But the other reason that the resurrection of Jesus matters immensely is because what you believe to be true ultimately determines your values. We think the biggest fake news on TV today comes from Fox News or MSNBC, depending on how you vote. But if we fly a little higher than the petty debates that are going on between the left and the right politically, you begin to realize our whole culture is offering different versions of the same fake news. And the fake news is this. The fake news is that the most real things in the world have to do with money and the things you can buy with money. So the more money you have, the more things you have. And the more things you have, the happier you'll be. Political parties may argue about how to get more money into people's hands, but everyone is trying to lead people to the promised land of material abundance individual personal freedom, the glories of individualism and unlimited consumerism. The values that define our culture are these. Do whatever you want, buy as much as you want. And with every breath, we're told that individualism and materialism and global economic structures that create supercomputers the size of a phone, we're told these are the most real things, that this is the way life ought to be. But I'm gonna stop right here and ask a question. Is this true? Because that's what Jesus spent 40 days addressing right after his resurrection. Is this the most real world? Materialism, individualism, consumerism, nationalism? And here's the answer. These things are only real because so many people believe that they're real. Then they sort of become real. But only because people believe that they're real. I'll give you an example of what I mean. <clears throat> Let me pull some money out of my pocket here. This is called a euro. Eric, could you bring me water? This is called a euro. 
this money's good in Europe. I think my tea thing is empty. I may need actual water. This is uh, American money. So here's European money. <clears throat> here's American money. If you're in America, which money would you rather have? This one, right? Because it's real. But if you go to Europe and you try and spend this, they won't take it. To them, it's not real. If you're in Europe, you want this money. This money's real. So money is real only to the extent that people believe in it. Thank you. Pardon me. Hay fever season. Money is real only if people are believing in it. And it's very important that we understand this. What if in America, where this is real money, a large group of people said, you know what? We're not going to believe in this anymore. We're going to start trading with this money instead. And so now you have a group of people believing that something is real in the midst of a larger group of people believing that something else is real. That's exactly what happened uh, when the church began. The Roman Empire was ultimately threatened by Christianity because the myth of the Roman Empire <clears throat> was that your source of life and security and meaning comes from the empire. And then along come Christians, and Christians say, yeah, I know that you believe in this empire, but we're here to tell you this empire won't last forever. And so this is not the most important thing. And Rome got mad at the Christians because the Christians said that this empire won't last forever. The Roman Empire won't last forever, just like the Austria-Hungarian Empire didn't last forever, just like the empire of consumerism won't last forever, just like the empire of upward mobility won't last forever, just like America with all its consumerism and individualism won't last forever. It might last for our lives and our children's lives and maybe even our children's children's lives, but know this, no kingdom lasts forever. Read Psalm 1. None. So uh, you may live in the midst of a myth that the kingdom that you participate in is the most real thing. It isn't. And myths don't last. No myth lasts. But here's the deal. If Jesus is alive, then he's moved from death to life. Out from the dead moves Jesus away from the realm of myth, firmly planted now as the one who will last forever. The cross will forever be empty because Jesus lives, right? So Jesus lasts and Jesus' kingdom lasts. And therefore, Jesus spent part of those 40 days offering many what? Convincing proofs regarding the resurrection. Convincing proofs. What were those convincing proofs? I'm going to give you three real briefly here. He, he uh, told people uh, that there were witnesses. By, he showed himself to people. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5, speaks to this appearance of Jesus. In other words, uh, Paul asks the question in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. He says, we know this to be of first importance. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. And then Paul says, do you want to know why I believe? I'll tell you why I believe. Because after he rose again, he appeared. He appeared to Peter, 
He appeared uh, to uh, John. He appeared to all the disciples. He appeared, he appeared to Mary. Later, he appeared to me. He appeared to 500 witnesses. He says, hey, if you want to know if Christianity is true, don't look inward to fuzzy feelings. Go ask. There's 500 people who saw him alive after he, de- after he died. I just watched the movie Just Mercy about Walter McMillan, a guy falsely accused of murder. He was falsely accused of murder, and ultimately one of the things that helped move him toward freedom was the fact that there were like 80 people at a Sunday morning fish fry who said he couldn't have killed that person because at the time of the murder, we all saw him at the fish fry. Witnesses. So Paul's saying, if you're going to put your faith dollar down somewhere on the board, and everybody does... Because the reality is none of us have bomb-proof certitude about what life means and how life ends. But in a world where empires end, the Assyrian Empire ended, the Babylonian Empire ended, the Medo-Persian Empire ended, the Greek Empire ended, I decided that I'm going to believe what is real is not the Roman Empire, but the empty cross. Jesus lives. He's therefore not a myth, but real. Witnesses. That's a piece of evidence. Another piece of evidence regarding the resurrection is that when you read the resurrection story, women were the first witnesses. And this is super interesting to me because if the Gospels were written as a lie to persuade you to believe a lie or a myth, if you're trying to be persuasive, then you want to offer all the good stuff. Any of you who bought a house know that when you're looking at the ads to buy a house, it doesn't matter how terrible the house is, all the language in the ad for the house is flattering. Have you guys seen that before? Yeah, you want to buy a house. Oh, yeah. Uh, if it's a tiny house, this is what it says. Intimate setting, right? And if there's no kitchen, it says quaint kitchen. It, it, it'll never tell you about the basement that floods, about the roof that leaks. We hide the bad stuff. Well, let me tell you this. Women as the first witnesses, that would be bad stuff in the first century. Because a woman's voice wasn't even credible in the first century as admissible evidence in court. (laughs) So if I'm writing something to persuade you that it's true, that I know isn't true, would I say in that story, the first people to see Jesus alive were were women? I'd never say that. So women as witnesses is evidence of Jesus, the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And then one of the most significant evidences is this. In John chapter 21, Jesus is appearing to various disciples. John chapter 20, I mean. And uh, in John chapter 20, Thomas says, I won't believe unless I uh, put my hand into his side and feel his scars. John chapter 20, verse 24. Eight days later, uh, Jesus appears. Thomas is with him. And Jesus says, uh, Thomas, reach your finger in, see my hands, put your hand in my hand, feel the scars, and don't be unbelieving, but believe. And then it, it says, Thomas answered, he said, my Lord and my God, I saw the scars, I believe. So here's Thomas. Is, who is this guy? Is this a hoax? Is this an imposter? And for him, the scars are the final proof. And there's an important word right after that regarding the narrative. John chapter 20, verse 30. Look at this. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs have been written. 
so that you might believe. Really important. These have been written so that you might believe and believing so that you might have life in his name. In other words, my desire for you, says Jesus, is that you live into the life for which you're created, a life of joy, generosity, hope, justice, service, preemptive forgiveness, unconditional love. You cannot live that life without being filled with the resurrected Jesus. I'm here to tell you, I live now, today, 2020, in the midst of a virus ravaging the world. I, Jesus, live and want to live in you and express life through you. Look at the evidence so that you might believe. Let me just make a point here before moving on. All of us need to decide in life what's most real. We all have to make that decision. And making that decision requires faith for everybody. Atheists believe by faith there is no God. Communists believe by faith that the state should own everything. Anarchists believe by faith that the world would be better off without governments and nations. Every worldview requires faith. Because you don't know with bomb-proof certainty what's true and what's a lie, what lasts and what fades. So what do you do? Well, my encouragement to you with every fiber of my being is that you put your kind of faith dollar down where you find the most evidence. And where do I find the most evidence? I'm telling you this. The, the Assyrian Empire didn't last. The Babylonian Empire didn't last. The Medes and the Persians didn't last. The Greeks didn't last. The Romans didn't last. The Dark Ages didn't last. The British Empire didn't last. What lasts? The Beatles said we're going to outlive, outlive Jesus. They're gone. And Christ remains. So I'm putting my faith dollar down on that which I believe lasts. Empires don't last. Currencies don't last. Your health doesn't last. Your retirement plan and your job aren't bombproof. Your family won't always live in the same house. And you've no promises that life will ever turn out as you want it to. And I don't say these things that sound depressing because you're made for work and intimacy and family and creativity and nations aren't bad things. All good. But the question on the table this morning is this. What lasts forever? <laughs> and in spite of the fact that we invest our time and money and emotional energies overwhelmingly in the isms of this world, Jesus presented his disciples for 40 days many convincing proofs, including the sightings of him by 500 people, the scars in his side, the women who were testimonies. Therefore, for me, I'm telling you, as your friend and pastor, I believe Jesus lasts forever, and therefore his kingdom lasts forever. John 20, 28. Again, let me just read here. Jesus said to Thomas, oh, you've seen me and you believed? Awesome. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. That's us. No face-to-face -face contact with Jesus. And so I don't say to you, I know these things. I say, I believe these things because of this particular passage. I haven't seen Jesus with my eyes, but not seeing, I still believe. Why? All the evidence compels me to put my faith dollar on the cross. The evidence invites me there, and hence the higher value of his kingdom and reign 
those things become more important than anything else because if Jesus lives, I believe Jesus' kingdom will live too. So that's the first thing. Many convincing proofs. And then secondly, what does it say? Jesus offered important information concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus rises from the dead. He locks his followers in isolation for a little while. He teaches the most important lessons they're ever going to learn. And what they will learn from the resurrected Jesus will give them tools that they will need to navigate the white water of a world turned upside down. It's going to be like they're going to wake up in a new land, right? Within a year, someone in their communities will be killed just for preaching. 70% of Rome would be burned to the ground in 66 AD. Jerusalem would be destroyed in 70 AD, possibly in retaliation. And this new movement immediately faced persecution from Judaism and then from the Roman state. And internally, as believers, they faced intense debates about what it meant to be the church. Who's in? Who's out? Worship Saturday or worship Sunday? Eat meat? Vegetarian. And if you're meat eating, can you eat meat sacrificed to idols? What about circumcision? What about marriage? What about divorce? What about singleness? What about uh, alcohol? What about the second coming? What about? Like here we are trying to serve the world and figure it out at the same time. And it hasn't stopped for 2,000 years. Still trying to figure it out. Still trying to serve the world. So here they are in this room, amazed that Jesus risen from the dead, but at the same time kind of wondering what it all means because just three days ago, it's like they were in a different land. And they got on a plane, took a nap, and they woke up, and now here's Jesus. And he's telling us to wait in this room for something called the Holy Spirit. And by the way, what are we going to do after that? Scatter around the world? Why would we do that? We like it here. We'd pinned our hopes on this guy being Messiah. And what we thought that meant was that he would usher in a kingdom that would crush Rome and usher in some sort of theocracy where those yoked to Jesus would gain positions of power in Jerusalem or Berlin or London or DC or wherever the power of the day happens to be. And then the people in power, because they're the good people, will impose the will of God on everyone. That's what we thought the kingdom meant. Now he's alive again, but clearly everything we thought we knew about Messiah and kingdom is wrong. Everything. Because A, we didn't think Messiah would willingly be executed. B, we didn't think he'd fling open the gates of belonging to literally everyone. C, we didn't think that him hanging on the cross, he would offer preemptive forgiveness to people who were hurling abuse at him. D, we thought Messiah would bless our pursuits and confirm our prejudices and our nationalism, and he didn't. E, he taught us that if you want to be great, you got to wash people's feet and be a servant. We were wrong. He's back. What's next? If the kingdom isn't nationalism or materialism or religious pride or self-righteousness or individualism or consumerism or centralism, what is it? God's kingdom, what is it? Well, that's what he talked about for 40 days. I only have 11 minutes, so I'll be short. But let me explain something about kingdoms. Kingdoms have values. 
Kingdoms have values. Your home life is a little kingdom. Again, speaking of the kids, how do you kids just chat here for a second with your parents? How do you kids, when you eat, you use a knife and fork? Most of you? Anybody in the room eat with your hands? Probably not. I think the reason you use a knife and fork is because your parents, the king and queen, have some rules. And when you're in this house, you use a knife and a fork. They're values. And you don't solve problems by biting each other or throwing stuff. Those are values. And you don't sit in front of the television all day and watch. Those are values. Kingdoms have values. Jesus' kingdom, the one who'll live forever, has values too. And here's the thing that makes it hard for all of us. The values of Jesus' kingdom are opposite of the values of the world in which we live. Our world loves being served. In Jesus' kingdom, greatness comes from serving. Our world loves being greedy and saving all your money and keeping it for yourself so that billions are living on less than $2 a day so that, uh, as we've already heard today, refugees show up at our shore without any money, uh, now trying to work at a job that is no longer available to them. Billions in the world living on less than $2 a day because our world loves greed. Jesus' kingdom loves generosity and empowerment. So that through ministry partnerships in Rwanda and Nicaragua and Costa Rica and refugee resettlement, people are moving out of poverty and disease and lack of access to clean water and into community and empowerment and economic freedom. That's kingdom value. Our world loves to be tribal, which means we love to gather with people who look like us, spend like us, vote like us, think like us. But in Jesus' kingdom, Jesus says this, no, I'm not tribal. I recognize that all of humanity comes from one blood. And so there is no longer, Galatians chapter 3, male nor female, slave nor free, uh, Jew nor Gentile, black nor white, rich nor poor, educated nor uneducated, homeowner or renter or homeless, all belong. And then as citizens of the kingdom... We're called to be the first ones to cross social divides and break down racial dividing walls and care for immigrants. Values of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus spent 40 days on this. And it became very important as the world imploded in the first and second century. These values would shine as light in the midst of darkness. Why does that matter today? Well, hello, the world's imploding. And we have the opportunity now, once again, for the light of Christ to shine clearer than ever in the midst of darkness. As we cross social divides, as we serve one another, as we love our enemies, as we resist tribalism, as we resist fear, as we resist greed. <laughs> and uh, one of the final values of Jesus' kingdom versus our world is this one. Our world likes to worry. I mean, Jesus knew this in Matthew chapter 6 uh, when he was preaching this is what he said. He said, listen, if you belong to my kingdom, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. And he's speaking today as well. Friends, listen, here's Jesus. Don't worry about what you can't control. You can't control when businesses reopen. You can't control what happens after the reopening. You can't control uh, your 401k. You can't control who lives and dies. You can't control how wealthy you'll be one year from now. You, you can mitigate things, but you can't control. Control is an illusion. 
So don't worry, that's Jesus. But then Jesus doesn't just sweep the ground clear by saying, don't worry. He adds this, don't worry, but seek first God's kingdom. Seek the kingdom. In other words, seek to embody love and peace and celebration and hospitality and courage to your children, to your family, to your extended family, to your neighbors, to those with whom you speak on Zoom. You can't control your net worth, but you can control how you spend your time. You can control whether on this day you'll be an encouragement to someone. You can control whether you love your neighbor. You can control whether you open your pocketbook. You can control whether you serve in some way. You have that control. So you can, you can be involved now in this, in this kingdom that can never be shaken. And this is the point. Jesus knew that the Roman Empire was about to be shaken. He knew it. And Jesus knew as well that every empire in history had been shaken. The Egyptian empire, gone. The Medes and the Persians, gone. The Amorites, gone. The Hittites, gone. The Jebusites, gone. The Canaanites, gone. The Babylonians, gone. The Greeks, gone. The Romans, gone. The medieval superpowers, gone. The centuries of tribal wars in Europe, warring tribes, Gone. What, what's your kingdom? Upward mobility? Just going to keep investing 8% a year. That's what the books say. Perfect health? You know, work out of the day and fish oil. Bomb proof. Great sex? Until your par- partner gets sick? Great job until it's a restaurant. Great house until it's an earthquake. What's Jesus trying to teach us over and over and over and over again in history? It's pretty obvious. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 26 and 27. The author writing to motivate Christ followers to hang in there in a tough time says this. God's voice shook the earth then, but God promised saying, yet again I will shake the earth and the heavens. And this expression yet again denotes, watch this, denotes the removing of things that can be shaken in order that what cannot be shaken may remain. Where are you putting your faith dollar? Man, we thought our security would be found in upward mobility, in a solid education, a nice house, prestigious job, good health, tight family, season tickets, (sighs) gone. It's okay. Because the good news, and that's the meaning of the word gospel, the good news, Hebrews 12, 28. We are receiving a kingdom 
that can never be shaken, ever. <laughs> not life, not death, not principalities, not powers, not heaven, not hell, not a virus, not an economic downturn, not a depression, not a, not a national collapse. Heaven and earth may fall to the sea, mountains may fall to the sea. I will not be shaken. Why? An eternal kingdom. That's good news. And that's where we're putting our faith. And that's your invitation in the days ahead. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you so much that you are creating a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Our desire is to align with that kingdom now more than ever in order that we might be people of hope in this world. Take us there, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.